Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Trudeau has gone from sunny ways to personal threats and pelted stones. Why do some Canadians dislike him so much? The election is winding down, but the fourth wave continues to rage on. What do the party's election platforms say about controlling that fourth wave? And police have launched an investigation into allegations of mass drugging and sexual assaults at Western University this past weekend. Ramona Aglia, professor with the Women's and Gender Studies Institute at the U of T, will join us to discuss that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, let's talk about one of the other party leaders who has been the uh, the focus of an awful lot of, uh, well, shall we say, social media uh, attacks over the last little while, and that being Justin Trudeau. Uh, we know, of course, about the, the stones thrown out of it in London a couple of days ago, uh, some of the other abusive things that have been said about him and to him, the placards. Uh, there are a group of protesters that seem to be following around. Uh, with Justin Trudeau and Canadians, it seems to be a love-hate relationship. You're either one end of the spectrum or the other's. And uh, the way he's handled this is, uh, well, depending on the eye of the beholder, I suppose. Uh, we do know that, of course, with the incident the other day where there was a heckler that made some rather derogatory comments about uh, Mr. Trudeau and his wife, uh, Mr. Trudeau shot back. And uh, he's justified that by now. He's making no apologies for losing his cool with that protester in Vancouver who screamed obscenities at him. Uh, Trudeau says the man crossed the line when he started saying derogatory things about his wife. I am able to take... Uh, all sorts of different abuse, especially if it means that someone is not uh, somewhere else hassling frontline health workers or vulnerable Canadians. But he went after my family. He said hateful, misogynistic things about my wife. Um, well, we've talked about that before, about crossing the line and about private life and personal life when it comes to uh, public officials and especially elected officials. We'll talk about that. But more importantly, I want to find out what's going on. What's going on with the psyche of Canadian voters right now? And there's a very thought-provoking piece in The Conversation. You can read it for yourself later on, theconversation.com. Uh, one of the co-authors of the piece, uh, Fenwick McElvey, joins us. He's an associate professor in information and communication technology at Concordia University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for the time. Hi, Bill. Great to be here. I think the title of the article really sets the tone for the conversation, and maybe the tone of the conversation we've been having uh, for quite some time now. Uh, from sunny ways to pellet with stones, why do some Canadians hate Justin Trudeau? Now, I know that uh, I, when I ran that title back a couple of people the other day, uh, they said, well, that's a pretty strong word, hate. But given some of the things that have been said and some of the posts that are seen on social media, and you refer to some of them, Professor, in the piece, uh, it seems to be an apt description of what's going on here. I, yeah, I'm a bit cautious of saying it's hate other than I'm really interested in why people dislike Trudeau so much online. And one of the things that we try to say in the piece is this has been a long part of his celebrity culture is that much as yeah. people like talking about his sunny side, people also find that same celebrity personality grating and have taken to hating or disliking him online for a long time. But as I mentioned in, a, in my opening remarks, it's, it's polarizing. I mean, there are some people that, that love the guy. Uh, and just think, you know, he's he's the best prime minister we've had for some time. He's the leader that we need in these times. Uh, they like his handling of the pandemic, etc. But on the other side of the coin, well, you need only to log on to a couple of Instagram pages or, or Twitter pages to find out where those people are, are what their heads are at. 
Bill, that's precisely right. I think that what we tried to get across is that he's a deeply polarizing figure and polarizing on the celebrity politics, that it's personal. And so the comments directed against his wife that you played the clip of, to me, that's part of what we see of this dislike of Trudeau. It's not necessarily his policies first and center. It's really about his moral character that we see a lot of people gravitating and discussing him online and trying really to be as to be as insulting as possible and, and really to emphasize all his personal failures. It's, it's the quintessential example, I guess, of, of the way politics is played these days, though, isn't it, Professor? It's a, if you don't like somebody or if you don't want to vote for them, you, first of all, you don't want anybody else to vote for them. And, and the tactic now seems to be, I, I'm not going to attack their policies. I'm going to attack them as an individual. Well, I wanted to emphasize that Trudeau has been a celebrity and has rose to power on a celebrity style campaign so that he's popular, the Instagram style. And I wanted to show that there's a dark side of that. So Scott and I, when we were writing this article, we were really struck in in looking at online culture and really struck by the prominence of so much anti-Trudeau groups and pages and memes that we were looking at. And to point out that it's this weird mirror image where the same parts that you hear him talked about as, you know, good looking or popular are also causing people to really dislike him and dislike him because he's good looking and popular and born into a wealthy family. And that I think is, is something that we potentially overlook in talking about the history of Trudeau and Trudeau's rise to power. Well, you've seen the expressions, you know, the pretty boy and all these sorts of things, and some of them much more derogatory than that. I, I guess his, his initial rise to prominence, well, he was, he back in 2005, I guess, when uh, the Liberals were picking a different leader after Paul Martin. Uh, Trudeau was not even a candidate in that, but he was in, I was covering that convention in Montreal, and uh, he had a following even then, uh, every place he went in that particular place. And, of course, uh, I, I suppose that started when he did the eulogy at his father's funeral some years ago. Uh, but even when he got elected, uh, again, he, he, there's the, uh, been a, a, a corral of critics that have always been after him. We all remember the uh, the celebrity boxing match, the fun charity fundraiser boxing match when he fought uh, Senator Patrick Brazo. Uh, and I mean, CDT, I mean, they, Sun Radio, Sun TV actually carried the thing because they figured, okay, he's going to get his clock cleaned by this guy, and it didn't happen that way. Uh, there are people that just look for the opportunity, and I I don't know that I've seen too many other politicians on either side of the border that have been that the, the target of that much focus of attention and derogatory attention for like such a long time. Yeah, and, and certainly it's interesting that no politician attracts the same type of dislike that we've looked at comparatively. And that really that there's a dedicated group, and I'm not trying to say it's big or that it's influential, but it's there, and maybe that's part of how we can understand why we see people showing up to the rallies is that this is a sensibility and a dislike of Trudeau that's been cultivated online for years. And that is very much part of his politics and his brand in some ways is that it really does provoke people who dislike that his style of politician and, and yeah, his, his kind of flamboyance. There may well have been other politicians that were held in the same kind of a disregard, but uh, they didn't have to face social media. This is a different era, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I, and I think that one part of this is, is seeing that looking at memes and looking at the jokes people are sharing is how those sentiments, these opinions are maintained. And so it's not as though that a joke about Trudeau is influencing or causing people to dislike Trudeau, but it makes people feel connected. And so it potentially helps those who have a common dislike of Trudeau find each other and to feel validated in their opinions. 
And, and once that happens, of course, that, that, that starts the ball rolling on a number of other things. And you mentioned about the fact that some people that have a negative opinion of, of Mr. Trudeau uh, mentioned things like, well, all the lockdowns during the pandemic. Well, the reality is the federal government didn't lock down anything. Uh, but when people are angry, they're looking for a focus for that anger, and they don't like that guy anyway. So, yeah, it's his fault. Well, that, it's also in the article we talk about a piece around Omar Cotter. And yeah, Cotter, yeah. and I think that's important because – the, it was a violation of trust, and there, we show uh, a, a political cartoon of Trudeau hanging, handing Omar Khadr a bag of money. And it frames what is a really complicated legal case as though Trudeau is betraying you know, hardworking Canadian soldiers and giving the money personally, which is totally misrepresenting the case you know, objectively, but, but also, I think, really pointedly making it about Trudeau's own moral failings and betrayal of a, of a Canadian people or what many in, the, in these communities describe themselves as old stock Canadians. Yeah, that, that case I know was, was particularly upsetting to an awful lot of people, especially you know when you put it in the context that uh, uh, Prime Minister Harper was told by his own lawyers that uh, you settle this out of quarter, it's going to cost you a whole lot of money, and he refused to, and it ended up costing the next government a whole lot of money. Of course, they got blamed for it. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous, but that's, I guess, the way politics is played these days. I guess what you have to do, though, as you point out in the article, Professor, is juxtapose all the stuff that we're hearing and some of the things I still don't understand, the, the, you know, the characterization of, of Trudeau as a Nazi. I don't know where they're coming from on that. But, but he's won two elections. He won a majority government, a minority government, and uh, it's still a horse race in this election. So uh, not everybody feels the same way that is reflected in some of these posts. Yeah, and I think that's the tricky part in trying to talk about this is that we're not trying to say that this is influential. And that's important is that even when we did studies in the 2019 election, Trudeau was unpopular in these same groups. And that didn't make a big difference. It's not as though we see that being of great prominence. And we're not talking about large protests here. But in some ways, how do we understand that small segment of the Canadian public and, and trying to look at that group and, and the ways that Trudeau becomes this polarizing figure. And that, I think, helps try to make sense of where we see this reaction coming from. And it's not from nowhere. And it's not something that I would say is new. And 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 again, in fairness, you, in the piece you point out uh, in the in the conversation, uh, he's not the only leader that's facing this sort of stuff. Jagmeet Singh has been uh, the, the target of, of racist remarks and and memes on social media as well. Uh, Aaron O'Toole not quite so much because he's not out on the road very much. But when he has been, he's faced protesters not to the extent that the other two have. But it's there, which I think just underscores that once again the mindset of of, of this group. And they're not a majority. Uh, but they're there, and uh, they're they're trying to influence. Just like we saw in the, in the U.S. presidential election, I guess last year, isn't it? They try to to be be an influence in these elections, and uh, they're, they're they're certainly loud enough, anyway. Yeah, and I, I we describe it as a group as kind of a right wing fringe, and I think that that's part of a political tradition in Canada. And 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 saying that we have to live, I think, with the uncomfortableness of that being there and being somewhat more prone to aggression, and that. In Jagmeet Singh example, someone tried to perform a citizen arrest on him for violating or, or breaking the law. And th that same group is also sees Trudeau as a criminal. Yeah, it's similar to the locker up chance that yeah. would have been called against Hillary Clinton. And that's a really it's not it's not a left. It's a very specific kind of right phenomenon here. And that's, I think, something to be mindful of and, and to, be, to be attentive to as part of where we see these divisions in our society. Uh, near the end of the piece, you bring up a very interesting point, and uh, let's lay ourselves bare here. I'm a member of the media, and uh, 
what role, if any, does the media have in this? I mean, do we ignore these people, or, does, or do we report on it? Do we perpetuate the, the, the misinformation that's going out there? Where do you, is, it's a fine line here, and, and I'm sure there are probably media representatives right across the country right now that said, I don't know where to go with this stuff. Well, I, I always struggle with it, too, because by writing a story like this, are we calling attention to it? And are we calling attention to these groups that, without amplification by the media would go under the radar. And I think at this point, it's it's a shift where we're now trying to make sense of what is un, 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 inextricably part of this campaign, of the 2021 campaign. You know, we see it, you can't avoid it. And so now it becomes a part of trying to understand where that's coming from. And I think also calling into question just the, I think the privilege of some of these protesters in, in, in being allowed to be violent or being allowed to have such, you know, fantastical thoughts and, and, and threatening thoughts to Trudeau. I mean, I think that that's something we want to be kind of conscious of. And now I need to be more aware that that is having implications that this is causing people to potentially come to the streets. Again, not this is not changing the outcome of the election, but I think it's part of now our, our political culture that we have to acknowledge. And I know that folks like myself will try, and, and newspaper chains that I've read, and I read them all, uh, will sometimes try to counterbalance that with what they call fact check. You know, what's, uh, But people are so fervent in their desire and sometimes for their hatred uh, that they say, I don't care. We have, that's fake news. That's false news. I don't care what you say are facts. This is what he said. This is what I read, and this is what I believe. It's, it's very difficult to try to, to move them off of the position in which they're in. Well, that's, I think, part of this and other research is that the, the same – in these same groups, we also see a criticism and a distrust of the mainstream media. And, you know, there's memes of a falling building and that's uh, public opinion and it's being, uh, or liberal public support and being propped up by the CBC and the, and the, and the press. And yeah, I, I think it, it's a part of a, of a challenging phenomenon that we're trying to address in, in many different aspects of our life of, of growing distrust and a distrust that, that is hard to bring back in to the fold, so to speak. And there's reasons for that. And it's, I think the, the challenging part here is that as someone who, who teaches being critical of the media and thinking about it consciously, you know, the, the criticism we see here don't have the same kind of basis of concern as, as I think some of the deeper studies that, that we would talk about, say, concentration of media power in Canada. That's not what's happening here, but that same distress of the media is being used to kind of boy up and to take it and take advantage arguably but the stories we talk about here this becomes something where again the attention this is giving is further evidence that the mainstream press is uh is conspiring to you know to cause justin trudeau to be elected and that i think is a really troubling part about how do you counter and in many ways feel as though you know these disaffected groups have a way of participating more meaningfully in politics and that, that is i think this this part of where we translate from observing it to well what are the responses and that that's a much harder and that's the part i struggle with too and, and so this piece was just really to kind of acknowledge it which i think is the first step
Yeah, it is. And, and it really, I think, validates what we've been saying for the longest time right now that, uh, uh, you know, people, especially with the, the, the affluent influence, rather, of, of social media, uh, people read what they want to believe. They don't lead to get necessarily educated. They read something that's going to substantiate their point of view. And that, that, that seems to be the foundation for an awful lot of this. It's a very thought-provoking piece. I encourage people to go uh, to theconversation.com, Sunny Ways to be Pelted with Stones. Uh, Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks for writing the piece, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much for the great question. It's a real pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Fenwick McElvey, of course, from uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Unless you voted in one of the advanced polls, uh, you know, Election Day is going to be on September 20th, of course, and uh, it's about time that we started paying attention. As the editorial in the Hamilton Spectators has said, uh, we have a responsibility now to do a little reading and make a choice and mark an X uh, for Election Day. But it's difficult sometimes to kind of sift through the political rhetoric that's going on here, like what's truth and what's actually going to be an effective policy. I mean, they're promising everything, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, and, you know, the, the end game here is to try to get votes. That's what it comes down to. But let's do some analysis of what some of the policies are. And there's an interesting piece that uh, probably encompasses, I think, one of the major issues that's not really getting as much attention as it probably should. Uh, COVID-19 and border restrictions. Uh, here's what the party election platforms are saying. Uh, Juliana Piper is with us. She is a research uh, fellow of health sciences at Simon Fraser University uh, to try to, to shed the light on this. Uh, Julianne, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Happy to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. There is a piece, a section here that I think really puts this into the proper context, and it's something I've been talking about, and I'm so glad that, uh, that, that, that you've brought this to people's attention, too. Uh, it says the focus... The election focus on Canada's post-COVID-19 recovery assumes the country is now moving past the public health emergency. But with new infections surging across the country and worldwide, however, the end is not in sight. Uh, I don't think a lot of the political leaders got that email. <laughs> yeah, I, we were also very surprised to, to see that a lot of the political platforms are framed on, on COVID-19 recovery and sort of the outlook, the economic outlook over the next months and years and of course that's something that matters a lot to Canadians but um, I guess it's not so politically expedient to focus on sort of the cases that are surging and, and the fact that you know we're not out of this thing by far let alone if we look at you know what's happening beyond Canada's borders. Well, there's that element, too. And, and I mean, you know, I guess the most recent convert to that is, is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who had uh, one of these uh, conversions on the road to Damascus all of a sudden. I still remember July 1st, Canada Day, there he was saying, it's over, gang, it's over, no more restrictions, no more so social distancing, no masking, nothing. Uh, and now they've got, well, they're worse off than they were in the, the second and third waves now. So uh, we've got to, I guess, really embrace that reality, don't we, Julianne, that we're not out of the woods here yet. And it's all well and good to talk about economic recovery, but that's not going to happen until we get this virus under control. Yeah, I think it's really challenging, Bill. You know, everyone's tired. I think no one wanted to be in this fourth wave. And one of the things that's really hard about this virus is that um, a lot of the data that we get on sort of new variants or new cases that are surging happen after the fact. So it might feel like the cases were really low in the early July and we were sort of in this lull and vaccination rates were going up. And I think there was a lot of optimism about where we'd be now. And unfortunately, you know, the reality is that the vaccination rates aren't as high as they need to be and that, you know, there's still high levels of transmission happening um, in in Canada, as we've seen on the news, you mentioned Alberta, um, but also in many other places in the world. 
Well, uh, the numbers are, are not encouraging. I can tell you our Hamilton listeners know all about this, that uh, uh, the city of Hamilton has uh, the lowest vaccination rate in, in Ontario. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. not something you want to run up the flagpole and salute. Uh, and, and it's it, you know, we started off so well, didn't we? I mean, the numbers were pretty good, and we thought, hey, they get it. I guess everything's going to be fine. But the fact that it's really leveled off and the fact that we're seeing new cases, uh, people seem to be afraid to connect those two dots. But there is a, a, a relationship there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, certainly Canada has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. I think we're sitting at around 70% fully vaccinated. We know now that this, it's not enough. You know, we're shooting now for around 90%. And um, I think that's why we've seen, you know, these policies come in around vaccine mandates. And, and um, unfortunately, we're not we're not quite there yet. But hopefully, hopefully over the coming months, um, people will will feel compelled to, to go and get vaccinated. It is the best thing that we can do at the moment to, well, to get well, out the of great, the, the great work that you guys do at Simon Fraser with the, the health sciences, uh, you're, you're into the, the health and well-being. I, you know, I, I won't drag you into the political weeds here, but I'll make a statement. That part of the problem here is that too many governments, and I'm talking provincial and federal, uh, embrace half measures, and it's not getting the job done because they're afraid of the pushback they're going to get. And maybe one of the, the ones that we need to talk about was the focus of, of the piece here, and, and, and it's border restrictions, or lack thereof, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, you know, that was something they talked about way back when, uh, 19 months ago, I guess, uh, you know, when the first couple of cases were identified in North America. And... Uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of finger pointing going on during this election about uh, each other's policy. But does anybody have it right? Yeah, it's a good question. It's hard to judge, as you sort of mentioned, that there's not been a lot said on these issues. Surprisingly, um, I think you know the the current government. We've seen a a, a number of different developments over the last um, almost two years. Well, not quite a year and a half. Um, in Seems like 10 years, measures. but okay. I know, it does feel like a lifetime, doesn't it? The months blur together now. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of gaps and inconsistencies in how the international border has been managed. We know that as of August 9th, you know, the border's been reopened to vaccinated travelers from the U.S. and as of September 7th to vaccinated travelers from all over the world. Um, and there's been very little sort of news around that. And I think it's because you know, travel restrictions have great impacts on people's lives. And, and I think people have been, the tide has sort of shifted in terms of people wanting to reconnect with families, wanting to get back to, to normal. Um, in terms of what the party platforms are actually saying about what they'll do with um, travel restrictions moving forward from the Liberals, we hear that we'll probably have a little bit more of the same, essentially. Um, the Conservative Party has, has promised to sort of <laughs> revamp to remove vac- required vaccination, which is a bit concerning, and to sort of respond to hot spots, which we know that that doesn't work. You know, by the time um, we know that country X is is raging with um, transmission, it's too late to, to respond directly to that. You know, we know that, that places are connected um, globally and that people are moving about. So targeting one specific geographical area hasn't been a successful strategy in this in this. Um, pandemic. And then the other parties haven't really said much, to be honest, um, other than sort of commenting on on the status quo. 
So well, it is, yeah, it is I, I know the the, yeah, the black and the green party essentially saying, oh, yeah, we need a solid policy. Well, th thanks for that. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, let's let's talk about some of the details, and they don't seem to want to go down that road. But your point's well taken. Uh, I mean, as far as I can recall, as as of uh, yesterday, anyway, uh, there was still a restriction on flights from India here in Canada, uh, and and there's a couple of other countries that are on that list as well. That has not stopped the the, the new cases. That's it's it's proven to be an ineffective tool. Yet they seem to embrace that to say, well, that's, that's a good first step in doing this, but it's not working. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that might be partly why we don't see parties delving deeply into this issue that is incredibly complex, you know, logistically, but also politically, um, and also in terms of coordination with other countries. You know, we've seen that the U.S. hasn't reciprocated Canada's reopening to mm -hmm. non-essential travel in August. Um, so it's definitely a, probably a, a hot topic, but also a bit of a touchy one. Uh, you are right that, you know, these, these travel bans to specific places, they don't make a lot of sense. And, and I know people are going to say, well, what does that mean? Just throw the borders open? No, there, there has to be a protocol that's put in place. And, and it involves, as you mentioned in the piece, a, a number of different things. It's not just saying, okay, no more flights from there, or et cetera. Uh, there's, there's a protocol about, uh, well, we, we've tried the isolation, and that didn't seem to work. And so the government dropped that altogether. Uh, an awful lot of what's in play right now, I get, uh, Julianne, and I think you infer this in the article, is, uh, is on the honor system. And, and I guess some of these people aren't being very honorable because they don't seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing vis-a-vis self-isolation, mask wearing, social distancing, things like that. That's right. I think a lot of compliance, whether you're looking at travel measures at the border or, or sort of domestic public health measures, a lot of them require, require people's sort of goodwill and, and trust in the policy to, to comply. Um, you know, I think for fully vaccinated travelers, you know, we're now seeing a, a surge in the volume of travelers there is no quarantine required, no testing after arrival. So I think it's important to say that it's not about, you know, like you said, open or shut. It's not about completely closing the border. The border's never been completely closed. And and really, it does make sense to sort of facilitate travel for those who are fully vaccinated and, and pose less risk. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be testing and sort of taking precautionary measures to, to make sure that we have a, a full picture of what's going on. Yeah, I, I just reading part of the platform here for the Conservatives. Uh, it says uh, the, the Conservative government, and I quote, would not allow new variants into Canada. I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> Stop! You can't nice. come in. It would you know, be nice if no one did. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's probably inferred here that everybody kind of wants to do that. Uh, it's but the thing is, and this is what I'm sure you find frustrating, Julianne, as you go through with the research and and you know the impact of some of the policies that are in place or are being proposed right now. Uh, we're not alone in this. On a global picture, many of the other countries, uh, Israel, the UK come to mind, uh, and other European countries, are, are a little bit ahead of us when it comes to new variants and how they're treated. So we can live and learn from some of the things they've tried, and that some have been successful, not so much. Are, are we even doing that? Yeah, it's not totally clear, and it's definitely can be frustrating because, you know, we do see countries that are ahead of us in terms of sort of the, the ebbs and flows of this pandemic. Um, we know that globally, you know, vaccination rates remain below 10 or even 5% in some countries, and that we have seen, you know, for example, even in places where they have high levels of vaccination, in the UK, for example, when they reopened, they sort of had to to pull back again because the cases went up. So, um, you know, I think 
on the one hand, the science is evolving, the data is evolving, uh, the governments have a lot to manage on their hands. But on the other hand, I think, you know, a lot of people saw this fourth wave coming. Um, and there were, were people, you know, calling on the Premier of Alberta, calling on our various provincial and federal governments to, to not be so hasty in, in sort of reopening. Well, we saw that earlier in Ontario. I, I don't know if you recall the story, but uh, uh, where we have a, an Ontario science table here, are supposed to be the consultants for the Ontario government, and uh, mm-hmm. I guess this was—I guess this was near the end of the second wave, if I recall. I'm trying to get my chronology mm-hmm. right. There've been so many of them, uh, <laughs> where where they actually were frustrated. And I talked to the chair of that committee; he was almost to the point of saying, "I'm going to step down," uh, because the advice they were giving was not being in, enacted by the government. And and uh, I'm sure that's happened in uh, in Alberta. I'm sure it's happened in BC. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? Because you know, it has to everything that these experts uh, in all of these provinces uh, would put forth and say this is probably the best way to go right now. Ends up going through a political filter before we, the public, find out what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that especially now that we're at the fourth wave, you know, it, it's a, we're in a different spot, or we should be, than than where we were, you know, in January 2020, when there's mm-hmm. a lot that's unknown about about the virus obviously there's policy issue issues and areas that are a bit trickier um and and you're right um there's there's also still debate and discussion about what the the right path forward is among the scientific community so um i think that's also challenging you know when you have different voices um arguing from from different perspectives and interpreting the science and the evidence in different ways and Um, and that's always going to happen though that's always mm going to happen there's always going to be different interpretations. I mean, we've seen extremes. I mean, let's face it, there's some people that allegedly were full-fledged doctors in the States that agreed with uh, Donald Trump that you could inject, uh, you know, chlorine into your, into your veins and the, the hydroxychloroquine that they were recommending too. Uh, common sense seems to prevail with that sort of thing, but it's out there. So if you're a skeptic or if you, you, you know, just skeptical of government in general, there's certainly enough places that you can go to to find misinformation that you can embrace. And, and that really muddies the waters, I would think. That's also, yeah, I think a big challenge, a big challenge during this period in time. Um, but absolutely, I think you're right that the, that we can look to other countries and we have seen policies and strategies that have been effective. We know that, for example, in, in our research, um, in terms of border management, there have been, there have been jurisdictions that have acted early and comprehensively and been able to sort of manage the, the importation of of different variants and when they are when they are imported having sort of really robust testing and contact tracing to be able to track those cases down um, so it's certainly not to say that the bar couldn't be set higher well and we saw that and you know you mentioned about the august 9th uh, decision to, to reopen to americans uh, that are fully vaccinated uh, and I, I actually know some friends of ours that actually came up. It had been two years since we'd seen them. Uh, but their mm-hmm. protocol was, was, was pretty strict. I mean, you know, they had to get a test. They, they were both double vaccinated and they've got proof of that. But even when it was time to go back home, uh, they had to show a COVID test that was no more than 48 hours old, plus this vaccination before they'd even let them back on the plane. And, and yeah. then, of course, there's isolation once they get back home or what the isolation once they came up here. And, and you've got to adhere to that. And, and the problem is, is I guess, you know, you, you can't be everywhere, I guess. And a lot of governments are saying, well, here's the policy, but we can't really do much the way in enforcement. Uh, so, it, it, you know, you have to ask yourself, how effective is it going to be then? Yeah, I mean, they are challenging policies to enforce, you know, logistically and, and resource intense. Um, Canada has removed any self-isolation or quarantine requirement for travelers coming in 
who are fully vaccinated. And yeah. I think on the one hand, it makes sense because this group is, is poses the least risk. And like you said, there's already some measures in place and, and, you know, the logistics of having to manage the border and the airports, of course, there's, there's pressure to ease these restrictions. Um, we know, unfortunately, that, you know, the incubation period for this virus is a median of five days and that, you know, testing three days before travel is probably not sufficient to catch those breakthrough cases. It's just a question of, you know, how to implement policies that are, are or, or choose policies that are implementable and, and reasonable. And uh, I think particularly now that they've, they've reopened to vaccinated travelers means that there's going to be a much higher volume of, of travel through our airports which then poses a, a logistical challenge. But it's unfortunate because the only way that we have a clear picture of what's going on is through testing and sending samples for genomic sequencing. So, you know, we're likely now to see any variants coming, coming into Canada that emerge in different places around the world. Yeah, but to that point, I think one of the more distressing statistics I saw about a month or so ago was that apparently there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of rapid testing uh, kits that are sitting in a warehouse someplace uh, that have not been distributed. I mean, the government ordered them, they received them, they're there, uh, and, and nobody's using them. And that that's, kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, I, this is the, the challenge of some of these policies. You know, you have to go from point A to Z. So even if you're thinking about implementing testing on arrival at the border, it's, it's not just about the test. It's also about, you know, what happens with that test and where the data is recorded and how that data gets to Ottawa and then how decisions are made based on that data. So it certainly is a, is a complex um, equation, but of course, the first step would be getting the rapid tests out to people if, if they're meant to be used. Well, and AI, because it gives you a better barometer, it's awfully hard to track these things and trace them when you don't actually have the, the complete data. And it's and, and that's part of the other problem, I guess, too, as, as you do your research on this, Julie. And it's a patchwork, isn't it? You know, BC is different than Ontario, then it's different from Quebec, et cetera, and right across the country. Uh, and it's, it's hard to find, a, a, you know, a common database for this since it's being evaluated in different ways. Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges that Canada has faced in public health in the past and will probably continue to face going forward. It'll be a big question coming out of this pandemic once we're there sort of looking forward is that data has been an ongoing challenge in, in this country and it's part of being a federation where, you know, public health and, and health services are at the provincial level. But um, it does mean that there's many gaps in the available data and Lots of challenges coming from the Public Health Agency of Canada in terms of collecting and, and putting that data out in a in a really timely fashion when we need to make sort of um, really rapid fire policy decisions that should be based on the evidence. Well, I know that during elections, every politician wants everybody to love them, especially when they go to mark their action. I understand that that. That's a reality that we have to face. But I think the takeaway from, from the piece here is that uh, we can handle the truth. As a matter of fact, we, we need to hear the truth uh, if we're really going to uh, defeat this thing in a passage of time. And uh, this should be required reading, I guess, for all the, not just political leaders, but everybody running for office in, in any capacity in this election. Juliana, great work that you guys have done on this. Thank you so much for that, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Julian Piper, Research Fellow at Simon Fraser University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Disturbing story from Western University, London campus, of course, uh, about sexual assault. And it's a, it's a problem at, it, at campuses all over the country. I mean, orientation week is supposed to be an exciting, pleasant time for new students into the university campus and the university uh, experience. Uh, not so much for especially the a number of uh, women at the Western campus over the last couple of days. A uh, number of people have complained. There's a, a rumors now about uh, women that were drugged and sexually abused, and on and on it goes. Well, during a news conference earlier this week, London Chief of Police Steve Williams stressed that they still have not received direct reports from potential victims of alleged assaults at Western over the weekend. Given the seriousness of these allegations raised in relation to incidents occurring at Medway Sydenham Hall, We've opened an investigation and are actively working in collaboration with Western University to identify and support any victims and ensure a thorough investigation is conducted. I can understand how frustrating it is for authorities trying to investigate what's going on here. And because we've heard this in other situations with sexual assault uh, claims. Uh, and it's, it's surprising, you would think. But I want to juxtapose that with uh, a, a couple of things that we saw on Twitter the other day uh, from somebody. Well, she had, identifies herself as Cat. Uh, says, I am a fourth-year Western student, three-time orientation leader. This entire O-Week was horrific. I helped lead a predominantly female team. There were multiple instances where myself or other sophs, sophomores that is, were screamed at, pushed at, touched inappropriately by men. And she goes on to say about the alleged incident that took place uh, last weekend on campus. Uh, it was before midnight on Friday when we saw people starting to drop like flies. Before midnight, we saw ambulances rush to three separate girls in less than a 100-meter radius. The rumors about people being drugged started circulating immediately. Soft reported this early. Uh, says we were not allowed res- into the resident buildings due to the COVID protocol. I get that, but even as we begged higher-ups to admission to check on people to help us make sure everybody was safe, we were denied. Uh, and there's a number of aspects to that as well, because we didn't at, at that time uh, know how extensive the the alleged incidents were. And it goes on and on, but it's a rather long email thread and Twitter thread here about uh, the experience. And it's 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 sickening. It's uh, terrifying, uh, and it's it's the sort of thing that you you don't want to be thinking about. But it seemed to be a reality, and the fact that nobody's come forward yet. Uh, is, is not a new uh, reality, I suppose, but it, it, it does, you know, I, I think obviously complicate the process. So what is going on? I mean, we've heard so much about, you know, the, the, the Me Too generation and the big movement that occurred, and, and we've seen high-profile people being charged, and I think a lot of us might have had this false impression that, well, okay, we got this now. We understand this. We, hate, we need to listen to victims. Uh, but it still seems to be happening with great regularity, and especially on campuses. I want to talk about that. Uh, and to do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Ramona Allegia, who is a professor with the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Very disturbing story about Western University over the past weekend happening in residence. Uh, but uh, as we've just tried to connect some of the dots here, Professor, uh, this is not unique to Western and not unique uh, to London. It's something that happens on campuses all over the country. Yes, unfortunately, uh, the things have not changed that much. I heard uh, earlier the, uh, the discussion about the Me Too movement and having an impact on disclosures. However, uh, that has not filtered then down to the actual charging rates and conviction rates. We just have to look at what happened with Bill Cosby and their victim survivors. 
um, who went through a whole court process, and in the end he was just recently released uh, based on a technicality. So survivors of sexual assault notice this. So a disclosure does not necessarily mean justice in the end for survivors. And when survivors weigh up the risks and benefits of disclosing, uh, they factor these kinds of situations in. Are they going to be believed? Are they going to be victim-blamed? Are they going to be shamed? And so uh, when, and I don't have a lot of details about what happened at uh, Western. They're very vague. But if a noxious substance was administered to these young women, uh, rendering them helpless, they know they're not going to be able to answer the questions that we need for good evidentiary material to uh, make an impact in court. They won't remember details. They may not have the evidence. They won't know who uh, the person who assaulted them was necessarily. Well, we've talked to... uh the people that run sexual assault centers in, in many communities, Hamilton, Burlington, and down through London, uh, when these sad stories have, have surfaced in, in the past, Professor, and, and the consensus seems to be from an awful lot of people that actually do come and seek help, and not everyone does who's sexually assaulted, but those who do come to seek help, even anonymously, uh, th- then they say, well, do you want to report this? The answer is, why bother? Uh, because it's probably worth you know, more hassle than, than a good. And you just, I, I think, listed some of the concerns here. Is you're victimized all over again if you f- actually come forward and say, I want to make an official report? Yes, victim survivors are put on trial uh, as they have reported a crime against them, a violation against them. And there are still so many loopholes in the legal system where their own histories, uh, medical histories, psychiatric histories, sexual histories, are um, inevitably brought into court. So uh, we haven't dealt with these loopholes. So while there have been advances made with the Me Too movement and disclosing, and disclosing in safe spaces such as social media, and the research, which I've looked at very closely and done myself, is actually the intent of disclosing on social media is not the intent to get social or justice uh, um, you know, uh, given to them, but in fact a place to, to air uh, a grievance, a harm that's been done to them, knowing that there's a community out there that will understand them, the statistics still show that about 80% of sexual assault survivors do not disclose and that um, the, the needle is moving slightly on uh, charges, uh, but not that much, where uh, a, a report that was a, a good study that was done in 2016-2017 called Unfounded found that one out of five sexual assault uh, investigations do not uh, result in charges, and, and that needle has moved slightly to the better, but not a lot. It's, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot in the way of information here. A lot of stuff is a, that's been posted on social media, uh, but as the chief of police said, you know, we need people to come forward. And I can understand that from a technical standpoint, uh, but the I guess the overriding question that needs to be addressed here is how do you create a safe environment? Uh, you know, there's so many people. I'm sure you saw some of the posts over the last three or four days uh, that said that they just don't feel safe. And, and, and on the on the campus, and I know the university comes back and says, "Well, we have patrols there that will, you know, accompany you from one place to another, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Uh, but th- th- one of the allegations yeah, here is up with stranger. These are not stranger assaults. These no. are assaults that are happening within the context of some sort of even beginning relationship. That there's a party going on, that people have been invited to, 
that this isn't uh, the boogeyman, you know, jumping out in the dark behind a building and attacking somebody. These are orchestrated, very um, uh, intentionally uh, designed kinds of situations to render victims uh, helpless. Uh, the the you know so. The safe space, and what happens is, and I should mention this, in large institutions, not even just universities, but other large institutions or large organizations, they want to handle this internally. They don't like the optics of seeing that their campuses are unsafe or schools are unsafe or your workplace is unsafe. They try to do an internal investigation, which is probably the most unsafe way of moving forward in a sexual assault investigation. Well, haven't we just seen that with the quote-unquote investigation into the Canadian military? Exactly. You know, the, the biggest concern that a number of people who have come forward was simply saying, look, they just they sweep it under the carpet because it's an embarrassing situation. And I, I'm not suggesting they're doing that at Western, but a lot of the things that uh, that the president of the university talked about, as you say, the patrols, the company, et cetera, like that, they're already in place, yet this still happened. And, and there there's some indications that there could be upwards of 30 different victims. Uh, and if, when you start talking about things like date rape drugs that, used to this this is a it, it almost sounds like there's a premeditation here and and i know and i'm sure you do through your studies professor that we understand that orientation week and frosh week things can get a little crazy on a lot of universities and those are well documented uh but but you know if you can't feel safe walking at, at, or even in your own residence which is where this is alleged to have happened yes. where can you feel safe yes exactly and uh i think these internal investigations are uh detrimental to victim survivors. They don't trust that they're going to be heard out in the way that they need to be and that they will, in fact, be re-victimized by a system that's supposed to trying to help them. And you raise a really good point about the you know, Canadian military. And it's not just universities. It's any sort of large institution, organization uh, that, as you said, don't want these kinds of optics to get out into the public that uh, it's unsafe there. After all, you know, parents are sending their kids there, right? They're young, young adults. And um, to, to hear that uh, the, the university that they're, you know, thinking about for their young person um, has a high rate of sexual assault will factor into their decision whether they send their young person to that university or not. Um, but it is happening across the country almost every year. We do at this time uh, during orientation here about some sort of misogynistic uh, or uh, sexual assault situations or other types of um, uh, crimes against uh, women in particular. Well, and it happens, and, and it, it, to your point, I mean, Western University is considered to be one of the top universities in the world, let alone as, as U of T is. Uh, you know, the, and of course that that you know women, women who are deciding what they're going to do with post secondary education are going to look to these universities uh, and say this is where I you know I want to go this is a great university with a great reputation and a great academic standing uh, but if you can't feel safe then then wh how far ahead are you really mhm mm mhm mm yeah and you know we don't want to center out any particular institution because it happens in smaller universities uh, well, sure. you know with, with St Mary's uh, university a few years ago there were, uh, you know, hugely misogynistic types of activities happening in uh, Frosh Week. So it's just, you know, happening, it's all too commonplace is, is, is unfortunately the, the, the fact here. And also, you know, in my research and looking at, uh, you know, meta-analyses of, of many studies, it takes on average about eight years for a sexual assault survivor 
to disclose what's happened. It's usually after a lot of therapy, a lot of support, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they want it to go to charges and a trial. Uh, they're at that crossroads then to, to decide. But eight years before, and we, and we see this in the States, and we see this, you know, in Canada, that these delayed disclosures then also cast doubt on their veracity. Well, why didn't you say something sooner? Why didn't you tell right away? Why did you wait eight years, 10 years, five years, 12 years? What are you perhaps hiding? There's always this, you know, distrust and suspicion around women who've been sexually assaulted. The first sort of go-to default response is, oh, you've got to be making this up. Yeah. Well, I, I know. Think, you know, people have had disbelief about possibly 30 victims in, you know, one situation in a campus residence at a university that's wildly, widely heralded, you know, um, it's, it does, people go, really? Could this really have happened? Come on. And um, they hear that. They know that. And I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if these group of uh, uh, survivors have maybe even banded together to say they're not going to say anything. They're not going to put themselves out there. Um, and they're going to be asked about things they don't have answers to. They may feel shame. They may feel guilt. They were drinking underage. Their parents will find out. Perhaps they knew some of the perpetrators. Maybe they don't even know who did it to them. Uh, so there are so many things that would hold them back from from going forward and then seeing the university as an unsafe space, which has been sort of the narrative for the last several years across the country around universities. You just talked about an incident, and I can relate a case. I, I, I'm not going to give the, the lady was anonymous, but she mentioned something that happened on a university campus some years ago, and it wasn't Western, by the way. But for that very same reason, and, I, and I, you know, we said, well, you didn't report this. And she said, well, first of all, and you mentioned a very valid point, alcohol is prohibited in, in residences, especially during orientation week. Uh, so if you were drunk, first of all, she was afraid that there were going to be ramifications against her by the university. And, and then, of course, she's going to say, well, you couldn't be believed because you were probably drunk anyway. So... Uh, it gets tossed out so it just seems like the deck is stacked against them each and every time that somebody wants to come forward even if they feel inclined to come forward and, and most of them as you've said don't yeah absolutely the, the the deck is stacked against them and they, you know these are smart women <laughs> they can put two and two together and they're just starting uh you know a, a new chapter of their lives and and perhaps they they do feel that they'll be blamed for other uh, issues around the sexual assault, like you said, drinking underage, drinking in premises where you're not allowed to. And the irony of that is it was probably a group of young men who set up that party, a kegger, had that all, and, and I'm not saying all of them would be involved, but some of them would take advantage of the fact that drinks were going around, and I know that, in, and, and I've been involved in orientation uh, packages that go out to to new students coming in, and, you know, one of the things they say is cover your drink. Never lose sight of your drink. Mm -hmm. Make sure that nobody else gets a hold of your drink. Why? And we're still in that defensive posture of a predator perhaps taking advantage of somebody. So, uh, you know, the onus is then on the potential victim to protect herself. And as more alcohol is, you know, ingested in the system, we know that drink's not going to be covered after some time that drink is not going to be by their side all that time, that there are going to be opportunities to slip a rape drug into that. Very troubling situation. I know the investigation is ongoing, but uh, our hearts uh, go to the, to the victims in this situation. Absolutely. Um, and these are, you know, brave women who have been put in a very, very difficult uh, position 
at a, a young age, at the beginning of, you know, vital careers that could unfold into, you know, great stuff, but uh, what a terrible thing to have to have them happen right away. It's you know, Absolutely. heartbreaking. Absol- I'm glad that you've put some focus and some spotlight on this issue. We need education out there. We need information out there uh, to counter some of the victim-blaming narratives that start to occur right away. We've had uh, two wonderful daughters that have gone through the university experience, uh, one at U of T, one at Western, as a matter of fact, and they had nothing but wonderful things to say. It's a wonderful and exciting time in in a person's history, and you don't you don't want to see this sort of thing that that's actually going to you know color that in that fashion. You you shouldn't have to be afraid but to to attend a university like this. So, uh, the the conversation will continue. You can bet on that, Professor. A pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for spending some time with us today. And thank you so much for having me. Take care. Take care. Professor Ramona Aglia from, uh, of course, uh, Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.